Welcome to another episode of Before You Kill Yourself with your host, Leo Flowers. How are you doing? Today's guest is Brett Rapkin. Yes, he is writer, producer, and director. Oh, let me oh, let me rephrase that. He's Emmy Award winning writer, producer, and director. Uh, and his new documentary on HBO, The Weight of Gold. I love this documentary. It's 60 Minutes. It's on HBO. It's uh, just been released this year, narrated by Michael Phelps. And it basically documents and talks about the mental health of our Olympic athletes. Uh, this is such a powerful episode and a great documentary to watch. It resonates with me, not because I went to the Olympics. I mean, you know, I like to say, like, I'm getting a gold medal at life right now. Anybody? Anything? Okay. Um, but it resonates with me because, you know, I played high school, college football, and that career was cut short. I talk about it a little bit in, the, uh, in, the, in this episode. And, and so that transition from going from being an athlete to not being an athlete is rough, is jarring. And, and a lot of us right now, especially during this time, are going through transitions where we've had, had a career for so long or a job or a certain way of life. And now that's all been uprooted. And now we're living uh, with a bit more uncertainty. We're feeling the uncertainty. You know, there's always been uncertainty, but some of us are now feeling it and are more aware of it than we want to be. And, and Olympic athletes are going through the same thing. You know, they, they train for something for four years, and then they get that post-Olympic uh, uh, depression, uh, depression as they, as they call it. So we talk about that and how to cope, how to get through it. And one of the things, you know, we, we talked about a little bit in the episode, but I want to reiterate for those of you who are going through that transition and are struggling, one of the most important things you can do is get yourself into a routine. And we talk about this in episodes, but create a routine for yourself, whether it's a morning routine, a night routine, you don't have to figure it all out at once. Just slowly start implementing things in your routine, whether it's a workout. Just book yourself for something. You know, if you're like, oh, I don't want to go to the gym, I hate the gym, or whatever, just, just put it on the calendar. See what happens. You don't have to go. But even just putting something on your calendar, that is a step in the right direction. And then trying to stick to the routine as, as much as possible. And asking for help. There's nothing wrong you know, with asking for help, even though I, I mean, listen, I struggle with asking for help all the time. Trust me. But it's something that uh, that we need to do. And then also slowly creating a team, whether you have to pay for that team or not. You know, I have an acupuncturist. I have a couples therapist. I have uh, an individual therapist, a, a doctor. And, and yes, all those things take money. But it, I didn't have these things all the time. These are things that I slowly have built myself up to. I've always had a vision of a team and, and being aware that I need a team of people around me to keep Leo firing uh, on all cylinders. I mean, let's be honest, I'm, I'm rarely firing on all cylinders. But just to keep me firing on, on, a, <coughs> on some of the cylinders, you know? <coughs> Excuse me. But uh, I just, for those of you out there struggling right now, Start with a routine or a regimen. Um, and as, as Brett mentions in his episode, you know, sometimes you got to shake things up. 
sometimes you're in a rut because you just we get stuck doing the same things over and over again. So you know, be willing to shake it up. Get on a train to to nowhere. There there are airlines are literally offering flights to nowhere. You get on a plane, you fly around for a few hours, and then you land right back to where you were. Cruise ships have been doing this forever. The 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 little two three day cruise ships you go out to sea. And then you come right back to where you started from, and you don't even dock anywhere. Um, and now airplanes are getting in on, in on that cruise ship game. So uh, you're going to find a, a lot of value from this. I'm excited if you have not watched the documentary, The Weight of Gold on HBO. It's on there now. Uh, like I said, Michael Phelps is narrating it. It's amazing. Um, and you could always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly because it's hard to cope. By yourself. If I was going through this quarantine by myself without my girl, I'd be going bananas. I would not be unmanned. I would not be well um, and, and not having a therapist to talk to or at least my journal. My God, if I didn't have my journal with me, I if I couldn't write or go for a walk, uh, I couldn't imagine living somewhere where I especially like the winter, like winter is coming and it's hard to, you know, when the snow hits and and it's like a, a, a you know twenty below. Uh, you just can't go anywhere. Oh, I can't even imagine. So uh, you know, shore up your allies. As my sister said, build up a war chest. You have to go to war with your mental health, right? And uh, and and so you have to build up a war chest. Whether it's you know having the right foods in a fridge so that you're healthy and you don't get COVID or even the flu or even a, you don't even want a cold right now because the cold. It can become the flu, it becomes pneumonia, and then becomes co- it's it's a domino effect. So, build up your war chest uh, of friends. Build up your war ch- your war chest of nutrition. Uh, your your war chest of uh, uh, hobbies, of things to do, of meaning. Have have things that uh, anchor you and and will and it'll keep you here, and have people that you're reaching out to. Remember. Nothing happens overnight. It takes years to build up relationships. Don't don't think that uh, everything has to be this immediate connection that we always see in TV and movies. Relationships take time to build. Give it time. Let it breathe like wine. All right. I've said enough. Go to thrivewithleo.com to work with yours truly one-on-one. And with that said... Let's jump into the episode. Brett, I'm, I'm excited to have you on. I just watched The Weight of Gold and was, I loved every minute of it. Uh, I was, the uh, only sad part was I was like, why is this not longer? How is it not 90 minutes? Did you want a longer documentary or did you want it at 60? Uh, you know, at one point it was uh, 83 minutes. And then um, when we started working with HBO, uh, we wanted to, everybody decided to take it down to 60 and kind of uh, really just get it to be athletes only because um, an earlier version had a bunch of different mental health experts and, and, um, and stuff like that. So yeah, we just decided to get it down to 60, but you're definitely right. Um, there's a lot more story to be told, not just in the Olympic space, but in other sports, which is what we're, we're focused on doing now. All right, so I'm going to jump around a lot here because there's, there's so much I want to unpack with this, and, and I'm so grateful for you for telling this story. Because uh, for the listeners out there, 
off the bat, I want you to understand and, and tell me if I'm interpreting this correctly, that the weight of gold, even though on the surface it's about athletes, uh, how they're dealing with their mental health post-career, you know, uh, especially uh, the, the, it's, it's uh, included in the backdrop of 2020 Tokyo Olympics being canceled due to COVID, and now what do they do? But the overarching is what, what do Olympic athletes do once they're no longer Olympic athletes, and, and how do they cope mentally? And the bigger picture, though, that I want the listeners to take away is that how do we cope when we have uh, hitched our identity to a certain uh, career, job, focus, and then that's been taken away from us? How do we transition, you know, whether we're talking about, um, uh, you know, re- retiring from a 50-year career, 40-year career as a police officer or for other athletes out there who are listening in or even a, a teacher who retires, how do we deal with the transition uh, from one thing to the next? So that's how I want you to process this, this episode uh, and, and thinking about how hard it is for everybody and anybody to to go from whether you've gone from being a, a you know a parent maybe you've lost a child and now you have to figure out who, what your identity is now that you are without child and et cetera et cetera so uh, it's just it's really a story of transitions and how do we transition is is that uh, a part of how you thought about this Brett Yeah, it's definitely a big part of it. Definitely the transition and, and the identity piece of it. And, you know, we live in a culture that's very achievement oriented and we're celebrated for our achievements, whether that means you're an Olympic gold medalist or, you know, working for a company and meeting your, your sales goals for that month. But, um, yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people, even before COVID going through a lot of different career transitions, we're not like our, our parents and certainly our grandparents generation where we're working for the same company for 30 years and getting the gold watch. Um, so it's, you know, how do we navigate these changes through our lives and changes in identity and, and do it in, in a healthy way. What made you want to tell this story? I know you have a background in, in sports. Can you, can you talk to us a little bit about why this story was so powerful to you? Yeah, well, I've been producing and directing sports films for close to 20 years now. I'm only not even 42, but got started pretty much right away after uh, graduating the University of Arizona in Tucson. And, um, you know, worked with a lot of different athletes, worked at the NFL, worked for, um, you know, ESPN, Fox Sports, pretty much you name it. Uh, but this project really just started off as intending to do a short film about Stephen Holcomb, who was the the current captain of the U.S. Olympic bobsled team. We shared a mutual eye doctor here in Los Angeles and, uh, you know, did a couple shoots with Stephen, including a long, emotional three-hour interview here in L.A. when he was getting ready for the the 2018 Winter Olympics. Uh, He had uh, survived a suicide attempt and um, somewhat miraculously given what he ingested and then won a gold medal at the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, which was the first in, in decades for us bobsled. So that that's really the only story I was planning to tell. Um, but 12 days after that interview with him here in LA, I got a call from his agent that he was dead. 
uh, he, he died, uh, in his bed at the Olympic training center in Lake Placid, New York. Um, and that, that opened up the film to becoming something much different. Did you, did you have any hint that he was still struggling? I mean, I mean, it seemed like a guy who, uh, you know, had an issue with his eyes and then had it seemingly resolved and then was able to still win medals would, you know, was up, was, you know, headed in the right direction, was on an upward trajectory. Did you have a hint that there was still something uh, that was uh, in the background uh, bothering him? Maybe, you know, I think depression's a funny thing. You know, I mean, recently someone said to me, you know, you seem depressed and I'm like, Hey, look, you know, with everything going on right now with the pandemic and Trump and uh, the racial issues going on and wildfires in L.A., it's like, how am I supposed to be acting? You know, am I supposed to be dancing on the ceiling? You know, like, so I've just been trying to maintain kind of an even keel and kind of lay low and take care of my family and my business and my health. Um, So I think, uh, you know, a question for you, I'd be curious, like, like, what do you think depression looks like? And, um, you know, how do you think people are supposed to be acting when, when things are challenging? That's a great question. And I feel like depression is one of those things that has many faces because it can show up uh, as, you know, it's easy to recognize someone laying around all day, unkempt, not showering. Um, but really, depression is a change. It's the change in the behavior. It's not someone, uh, you know, laying on a couch all day. It's someone who was typically active, and then you see them laying on a couch. Because you could have somebody who lays on a couch all day, and then all of a sudden has a bunch of energy. That could also be a sign of depression. It's a, it's a marked change in, in behavior, and I think that's why it catches so many people off guard um, in that uh, it, it has so many faces and, um, I know for me that, uh, sometimes like I get a bit, uh, more, I I feel a bit more frustrated, more irritable. Um, and I don't want to sleep at night. I I crave more sugars. Um, I want to detach a bit more. My, my thoughts are a little different. Um, and, and it, it is also like a physical aspect of like, it's, it's just hard to do the day-to-day things. It's, it's, you know, like taking a shower sounds like, oh my God, it sounds so overwhelming. And it's, it's something that, um, you know, I heard somebody describe it as like a sunburn, right? Where you, it, it doesn't really look that bad, but it, it just, every movement can be painful. And, um, but it's, it's, like I said, it's not like that for everyone at all phases. It depends on where you at, where you're at on the depression spectrum. So if, you know, someone, a part of depression is a feeling of hopelessness. So someone who is complete, feeling completely hopeless, like nothing will ever get better. You might actually see uh, a marked in quote unquote improvement in their affect. Like we're like, wow, they're smiling, they're they're having a good time, they're joking around, they seem to be eating, and it could be a, a sign of depression in that they feel like everything's hopeless. So, well, you know, 
uh, I got nothing to lose. And then you almost see, uh, that's when you start to see the riskier behaviors. They seem like they're outgoing and they're having fun. But what you really don't notice is that they're drinking more than usual, the partying more than usual, the up later than usual. Uh, and sometimes it could be hiking. You know, uh, you know, we, we love exercise and, and we always um, encourage people to get outdoors, get vitamin D because that could help with endorphins and serotonin release and, and trigger melatonin so that you can sleep at night. However, if someone is uh, working out for hours, that could be a sign of depression. They're just in the gym all day. So people can numb in so many ways. Uh, that it, it really, you, when you start to see a marked change in behavior, that's when you want to start asking uh, questions. But like I said, it's, it's a hard thing to detect, which is why it's so important to talk to a mental health uh, therapist. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, we, we've been talking a lot um, here at, at Podium, which is, you know, our, our, our studio about, uh, you know, we, we certainly have a desire to do a lot more work in this world, just given the experience we had and the people we met, the reaction we got during the process of, of filming where I, you know, do these different interviews with, with athletes and the, the camera crew, those guys are, um, you know, kind of vigilantes. They're on a plane every day, at least pre COVID just doing different shoots and, um, you know, thanking us for, for, doing that, that interview. And, and then of course, having the opportunity to, to get a film on HBO, which is not easy to do. Um, the reaction in the media with Michael Phelps and the other athletes going on everything from the today show to Anderson Cooper. Um, so we want to do more of this. And we think, you know, this project was certainly started pre COVID. It was finished during COVID. I was in New York, um, in March planning to finish it at HBO and had to come home pretty suddenly on March 11th um, and finish it, you know, remotely. But as we look at, you know, how, what impact can we make in this world? I, you know, I don't think that we're going to single-handedly solve depression or, or, or any, you know, uh, but I think that the thing that we can do, and I think the opportunity that we see is to, to chip away at that stigma that you were just talking about, because so many people, either don't want to get help. They're afraid to get help. They don't know how to get help. Um, and that's avoidable because getting help is, you know, reaching out to somebody, whether it's talking to a friend or a minister or a rabbi or a psychiatrist, a psychologist, a parent, and just talking about this stuff and then maybe getting professional help and maybe trying medication, which works for some people. A lot of people. Um, it all starts with just opening up. So, anything we can do to try to eliminate that that barrier is what we're trying to do with our our work. Well, you know, I played high school, college football, and you playing sports. Also, we know that there's a mindset of just suck it up, and and nobody wants to hear you complain, right? It's like if you're. I remember, uh, you know, playing games where. Uh, you know, so every now and again, I might get hit too hard and I'm laying on the field and the coach would come over and be like, are you hurt or are you injured? And mm -hmm. you knew that if you said you were hurt, it just means you, you needed a playoff. If you were injured, you were out the game, you know. And so no matter what your status really was, you said you were hurt. You know, your leg could be falling off. Well, I'm hurt, coach. And 
all right, so take a playoff and then you come back in. And so that kind of mindset has always stuck with me when, uh, you know, when I'm, uh, you know, not feeling at, at full capacity. I'm like, am I hurt or am I injured? And that that kind of stuck with me of like, you know, fight through it. Don't take me out the game. I'll do whatever I have to do to stay in the game. And part of that is not showing any weakness, right? You, you, you kind of grimace. You go off to the corner. You keep your helmet on, and you try to shake it off. And, and at some point, that runs out, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that everybody's, I guess, got a different threshold for, for physical pain and, 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 and psychological pain. And, you know, our culture definitely encourages us to, to play through pain. Um, you know, for me, I was having a lot of issues with anxiety and I was afraid to fly. I was afraid to go to meetings on high floors of buildings, um, cause I was afraid of having panic attacks and, um, you know, I, I would fight through it. I still did all that stuff, but it was really uncomfortable. The fear of, for people that have had panic attacks, the fear of it happening can almost be worse than, than actually experiencing it. Um, then your brain just starts, starts swirling. It's like, Oh God, is it going to happen now? It's a horrible feeling. Um, and I, you know, at some point a psychiatrist said to me, like, uh, why don't you try medication? Like you're, you're, you're suffering here and you don't need to. And I was hesitant to do it. You know, I wanted to figure it out on my own. I, I was trying meditation. I was trying yoga and I mean, exercise, I exercise every day and it, you know, changes my whole body chemistry. Thank God for my, my Peloton bike in my garage I have right now. Cause it's been a lifesaver before I was able to get that. I was like doing jumping jacks in my garage. Um, but it helped, you know, I mean, it helped. I think there was like a, some kind of chemical imbalance, you know, that, 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 that was, I was able to, to correct and it made my life a lot more enjoyable. Man, people love their Peloton and, and so, uh, <laughs> And, and, you know, one of the takeaways I want from, from that part of the conversation or this part of the conversation is that, you know, you explore different movement modalities. I think a lot of people who uh, aren't athletes and who aren't used to being physical, they, they take a class or they, they, they try some workout, they hate it, and then they just they never try anything else. And I love that you expressed that you were, you know, you were doing jumping jacks, but you, you know, our knees can only take so many of those. Um, and, but then you found Peloton and you fell in love with that. My sister right now uh, is taking dance classes and she loves it. Like you can't get my sister to lift weights at all, but a dance class, she, she could do 90 minutes of that. No problem. And is excited. So I want to encourage the listeners out there. It's all about finding a movement modality that works for you, whether it's walking, hiking, dancing, Peloton, uh, swimming, whatever it is, there is some dance, there's some type of movement modality that resonates with your body and your DNA and that you will absolutely fall in love with. Uh, that's for sure. I mean, doing something physical just completely changes the way I feel. Um, even just going for a walk, you know, I think that we're we're, we're, we're meant to move around. We're meant to get exercise. And, um, you know, both my wife and I, we're just different people after we work out and luckily we're healthy enough and able to work that into our, our daily routine. 
but I, I'm like one person like before my coffee and workout and then another person after. So it's like, it's like the Hulk. Oh, I'm the same way. My, my girl knows like, listen, don't talk to me before 10 AM. I got, I got like, mm-hmm. I, I got some self care to do before I could, I could even look you in the eye. <laughs> the, you know, that's that self care is everything. It's, it's everything. And I, I, you know, going back to the documentary and these Olympians, part of the double-edged sword is that in order to do something great, you have to do what other people won't do. And uh, when I listened back to the documentary or, or watched it again, you know, Sasha talked about how it's, it's compulsive, the working out. And, uh, you know, and then you had Katie call it addictive. And I forget uh, the guy's name who was uh, the went side to side. I forget what you call those guys. The, not the oh, Apollo Ono. Yeah, Apollo Ono. And he talked about how he was driven by fear and inadequacy. And when you had these underlying factors of addiction and feelings of inadequacy, compulsion, like those are in some ways great, obviously, for the sport of, of, of for training to be an Olympic. Because you kind of need this hyper-focus. You, you need to be compulsive about it, and it needs to be addictive so that you keep coming back and wanting to practice and study the game films and et cetera, et cetera. And then once that is all taken away from you and you have nowhere to, for your compulsion to go and, and that addiction to go, and uh, and then you're just left with the fear and inadequacy. Uh, that that could be a dangerous concoction. Yeah, absolutely. I think that for for athletes in particular, whether they're Olympians or NFL players or NBA players, they have such a sense of identity. I mean, look at look at you know. I don't know if LeBron's a good example because he's got a lot of other business endeavors, and I think once he transitions out of playing in the NBA. Um, he's going to have plenty to do, but from the time he was what 10, first of all, he had all this attention on him, um, because of his, his basketball ability, people wanting to, um, you know, help him with things and provide things to him. But on top of that, just the routine, I mean, they talk about, and I'm sure in, in the bubble, it's really different, but these guys are told when to, when to be in the lobby, when to get on the bus, you know? They have a game. There's a clock back on the bus, back in the hotel. Everything's regimented for them. And then all of a sudden that goes away. The identity of being the spotlight goes away. Oh, and by the way, their salary goes from making millions of dollars to zero. A lot of times it's just a really unique and tough transition. Yeah, because most of them weren't even in the million dollar category, right? Like these guys are getting. I think Phelps talked about you get sixteen hundred a month if if you're not a face, if you're not a name, if you're not uh, popular. Yeah, we could have done a whole another project, and maybe at some point we will, just about the finances of being an American Olympian. But that was really surprising to me. And I think to a lot of people that have seen the film, because we do have a little section about that, um, the Olympic athletes are definitely not not compensated in the way that most people would assume. Uh, I want to, I'm going to, I got two questions. I want to go back a little bit to you personally, because you talked about panic attacks and taking meds. 
um, and writing the Peloton. Are you doing other things uh, that are part of your self-care routine to help you manage the panic attacks? Uh, drinking bourbon. No. Uh, <laughs> the medication's been really helpful. I think that it created, there was like a cycle that was going on, like I was talking about before with, um, you know, once you have a panic attack, you start having the fear of it. It, it becomes kind of a, self, a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, you know, the things that work for me are, are, are the exercise. I still try to meditate whenever I can. Um, you know, ideally, I try to do 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the evening. I find it really powerful. I find that um, ideas come up that I wouldn't have otherwise had. Um, I feel more peaceful, but it takes discipline. You know, it's easy just to get up and jump into my day and start sending and responding emails and texts and all that. Like we all do. I know that sleeping with my, my phone or my iPad next to the bed is, is not what's best for me, but I still do it. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of temptations. I think technology is, um, something that we're all coming to terms with. Um, there's a lot of great things about it, but I think it creates a lot of anxiety. I mean, the fact that anybody can text or call or email you at their convenience about whatever they want. I mean, I've certainly had beautiful evenings out, you know, my birthday last year, I was out for dinner at a beautiful place with my family and I checked my email, got something that I wasn't happy to get. And it kind of ruined my night, you know, and then I was pissed at myself for, for allowing that to happen. Having said that, have I gotten rid of email on my phone? No, because I still have that curiosity and that, that wanting to know what's going on and stay informed. So I I think to answer your question, um, technology is a big, these phones, I think are a big, uh, opportunity for us to, um, practice some more self-care. And I think over the coming years, we're going to learn more and more about how damaging the devices, uh, you know, are for our, our peace of mind. Yeah. Steve Jobs was notorious for not walking around with any devices. You know, he walked the streets barefoot and, uh, and was always seen deviceless and said he would never let his kids have any of the devices that he's created, which is uh, so funny to me. It's super tricky. I mean, these devices have so much value. I mean, I, I, on my phone, I'm doing everything between, you know, checking the weather, checking the air quality, because we had bad air quality in LA a couple of weeks ago. So now, I, you know, I had to get that app. And then, I mean, you know, uh, text, I want to make sure my family's doing all right. Email, I'm like expecting, you know, people to respond about certain business stuff. It's uh, once you've gotten used to being connected that much, it's hard to to disconnect. Um, I, I mean, I'm, I'm crazy with this stuff. I'll I'll turn my phone off and be like, all right, I'm not going to be on my phone for the rest of the night. And then like 10 minutes later, I'll turn it back on. Like, it's embarrassing. <laughs> yeah, I mean, to, to be even here, I, I downloaded an app on my phone called Our Pack. And uh, it, it will block out all the apps on your phone for a designated amount of time. But I also didn't realize it also blocked out FaceTime. So uh, that wasn't any good. But, but I, I've downloaded that app in a million times and taken it off just because I'm, I am just addicted to my phone. But I have gotten into the habit of leaving my phone in the car when I go out to dinner with friends now. 
because as painful as it is to be so present, <laughs> um, I recognize the value in, uh, you know, not being distracted and, and really having to listen into the discussion at the table and, 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 and engage versus uh, let me just check the scores real quick. Because sometimes you just do it, you don't even realize you have it in your hand and that you've been scrolling. And so uh, I, I try to leave it in the car during dinner. That's, that's the most I can be away from the phone right now. No, it's, a, it's totally addicting. And um, I'll even leave my phone at home sometimes because as, as, as long as my wife has her phone, we know that if there is an emergency, people will be able to reach us. We got the, the, the ways on there so we, get, we know we have the GPS. And with, that's all we really need is just to you know, be reachable, uh, especially with a, with a kid. But yeah, I mean, I, I leave my phone at home and, you know, there's that little kind of like twitch you get, right? <laughs> Where's my phone and that curiosity. But yeah, there's, there's no, there's no doubt in my mind that, um, I think it's, it's incredibly hard to be present when, uh, you've got that thing in your pocket or especially in your hand. You talked about the fact that they were psych, uh, psychologists and, uh, psych- psychologists and, possibly psychiatrists, but mental health experts who were talking about what the Olympic athletes were going through. Were there any nuggets that stuck with you, that resonated with you, that you you really wish you could have kept in or any conversations that you had off camera that you thought would have been of great value to people watching it and people struggling with mental health? You know, I I think that ultimately we, we were able to express everything both story-wise and messaging-wise that we needed and wanted to through the voice of the athletes. I mean, thanks largely to the athletes and just their, their vulnerability. Um, you know, the way the project evolved was it started with just being about Holcomb. It was going to be, you know, a happy, a happy ending with him going to the 2018 Olympics and hopefully winning another gold medal, uh, kind of the road to the Olympics sort of thing. And then when he passed away, I learned about this post-Olympic depression uh, phenomenon issue. And so then I was just going to kind of track the roller coaster emotions that they go on, you know, every four years and, and, um, you know, which is just a really unique cycle, right? So using, using LeBron again, as an example, like he's going to go out over the next couple of weeks and either he's going to win a ring uh, or he's going to not win a ring and he might take a little time off, go to, go to Cabo, whatever, and, 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 and chill for a week, but he's going to get right back at it. And this year is actually a bad example because they don't know when the NBA season is going to start again because of COVID, but in a normal year, he'd be back out there competing in a couple months. If you're an Olympian, you go to the Olympics and win or lose, you have to wait four years to do it again. And most of them only do one. So, you know, the sort of plan A was Holcomb. Plan B was following the emotional journey. But what I learned in talking to the athletes, especially with the first interview I did with Michael Phelps, which was in January of 2018, at the end of the interview, I was like, is there anything else you want to add? And he said, yeah, as I think back, I don't think anybody even really, you know, cared about our mental health as long as we were performing. And that was a huge revelation because... I was of the you know impression that the Olympic teams had 
all these incredible resources in place for mental health, the same as they do for physical health. But that turned out not to be the case. And so we started getting more into that. And why is that? I mean, I would I would think also because you know, I'm listening to Tiger Woods book right now and he had a sports psychologist from a very early age. And I would think that, you know, through all the the work that athletes have done beforehand and uh, and what their process has been and and knowing that psychology has always been a part of the game. I would think that for sure, if we're representing America, the United States, we would have that in place. Why was that piece missing or lacking, I should say? Well, they, they, they do have the sports performance piece of it, right? So they, you know, if, if, if you're looking to work on how to, um, you know, visualize and, and, you know, hit the fastball on the bottom of the ninth, they've got that. But the, at the other end of the spectrum, as, as it relates to psychology, it's not striking out. It's wanting to kill yourself. So, you know, I think that there's, first of all, there's the stigma. Okay. So we, we can't forget about that. If you're, you know, most people who are, let's just stay on the Olympic tip. Unless, you know, for every Michael Phelps, there's a thousand swimmers that are on the bubble of whether they're going to make the Olympics or not. Right. And in a lot of these sports, the coaches do have some discretion over who makes a team and who doesn't. So there's a hesitation to go to the coach or somebody who's in touch with the coach and be like, Hey, I'm struggling with depression because they see it as, you know, a, a knock on them as a, as a, you know, a negative. So it starts with the athletes have to be comfortable going to somebody and knowing that it's not going to hurt their standing to talk about, you know, these, these issues of depression or anxiety, et cetera. But the people that work for these different, you know, cause each sport has their own NGB national governing body that are under the umbrella of the U S Olympic and Paralympic committee, which is under the umbrella of the IOC, the international Olympic commission. Um, they just need to, they need to broaden the services they offer to beyond just being from sports performance to being about, you know, the full, the full spectrum of mental health. And I'd be curious with Tiger Woods, whether the people he worked with on his sports performance were able to also work with him when he was dealing with, you know, anxiety and depression and, and some of these other issues. That's a great question. Uh, I have not finished the book, but, uh, and I have a feeling they probably won't even go into that, but that is a great question. And you're, you're right. There's a, there's a, a component. I was actually contacted by a, a NBA team to work with some athletes uh, with transitioning post because even for myself, uh, transitioning from college football I was injured my after my fourth year I had one more year to go and I woke up I would have uh paralyzed uh from a game and so my career was over then and I remember going to the doctor you know uh and getting the results back from him and he was like oh yeah you have bulging discs in your neck you won't be able to play anymore and then he just like walked out the room and I I was in the room with my girlfriend and I remember just feeling like my world, my life was over, felt crushed, devastated, but feeling like I couldn't cry or show emotion because, oh, first, I'm a guy, 
And then two, my girl is right there. And it it took me a long time to realize how much I was struggling. When I look back on some of my behaviors after that, uh, to realize I was struggling with depression. You know, I was I was eating more, I was sleep, I was sleeping so much. Um, my grades kind of took a nosedive. And you know, you talked earlier about routine and regimen. Literally, if you look at my transcripts from college, I was a I was a dean's list student during the season, and then I was a, like a D and F student <laughs> during the off season. Like I like some people, some of us are we require that daily routine, and when that's taken away from us, we become completely unhinged. Yeah, well, for you, because another world we're looking at, and we've actually done some filming, is around the NCAA and, and especially college football and, and mental health. Did you feel like, um, especially once you had that injury that there was someone you could talk to on campus about the way you were feeling? Well, you know, that's a great question because here's the double-edged sword. When you are, I think I was 20 at the time, 2021, when you're used to performing at uh, a certain level, and kind of demanding out of your body what you want. And growing up in a household where you didn't talk about emotions, I didn't have, a, I didn't have an emotional vocabulary. You know, uh, I just knew I wanted to cry and that I couldn't cry. And, uh, and we did have a sports psychologist on the team, but not feeling like they were really accessible. Like, it, it was almost painted in, like, you don't see the sports psychologist unless you really need to see the sports psychologist, and you don't really need to see the sports psychologist. Does that make sense? Um, yeah. And so I, I was also aware that you know we had uh, resources on campus of therapists to go talk to, and and even though I went to go talk to a few therapists, I was just completely shut down. You know, I would go in there, and you know, I would say maybe one or two words, and just kind of lay there and blah, 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 and leave. I, I just, I mean, it would have taken like a goodwill hunting uh, therapist, Robin, Robin Williams, to, to really connect with me at that time. So I, I think the services were there, but being able to connect with the right person to help me through what I was going through, that was a challenging part. If that makes, yeah. Yeah, well, one thing's for sure. I mean, we just we have to make those those people, those resources more accessible. Um, you know, less stigma, less um, you know, less interference. I mean, we should. I mean, I envision a world where we just talk to a mental health professional on a weekly basis or a biweekly basis, the same way we would talk to you know anybody. Um, it just you know, the evidence is in and it benefits people. So it's important. Yeah. I also, I think it's kind of the marketing of it too, of like, I don't need a psychologist. Like you think of somebody that you're just going to and talking to your feelings about, but um, you don't realize that even in um, post athletic career, the idea of visualizing uh, your next steps and, and visualizing your day and, um, you know, affirmations and all that, 
like all that is transferable into your next career, your next life, the next the next steps that you want to take. But, you know, the uh, way I was brought up, like th- that was only four sports. You know, you, you didn't visualize your, your day on a job or visualize yourself taking a test. It, you, just, you visualize playing the game, and that's all visualization was for. So I think there's also the um, uh, we have to somehow do a better job of marketing exactly what therapy is and what uh, therapists can do and the different types of therapy so that uh, people aren't afraid to, to go in and talk. But, yeah, at 21, you just feel like you, you know it all. You're like, I, I got this. I'll figure it out. I'm good. Like, that, that's, that's your emotional vocabulary. I'm good, you know. Mm-hmm. And so I, there's that challenge, too, of, of, especially for guys of overcoming that, um, that, that ego and that, like, I, you know, I'll, I'll handle it. I'll figure it out, you know. Well, through food or women or drugs or I'll just, you know, I think I was working out like three hours a day, you know, looking back, I was just, I was clearly trying to handle my emotions uh, in what I thought was a healthy way, but um, never really got to the root of it. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Do you feel like, you know, I've read that there's uh, an additional layer of stigma in the African-American community. Is that something that you think is true and that you've experienced about getting therapy? Yeah, because there was there was zero mental health talk. Like you were either good or pissed. That was the emotional vocabulary. Or you were crazy. That was it. You were crazy, good, or pissed. And so a- anything outside of that wasn't a discussion. And it was, uh, you know, don't be moping around here all day. Don't be laying, you know, like – that that was that's the big stigma of like don't be moping around don't be laying around here all day you're going to work or you're going to school you got to be doing something you got to you know and and nobody really asked how you were how you felt everything but you know as a society that's you know when we when we address each other it's always with uh yo know, so what are you doing or how are you doing everything's about do 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 and we never ask like how are you feeling what are you feeling you know, we, we never get to the field. We always want to know what you're doing. So as we're kind of creating this perpetual angst of, of being on a, on a treadmill. But, yeah, definitely in a black community, there's not that. Because there's not time. There's, there's not time in a black community to deal with emotions because you're working two jobs. Uh, you got to catch the bus. Then you got to catch the train. And then you got to go pick up the kids. And, you know, it's like there's too much to do. When you are hustling, when you're trying to keep the, the, the food on the table and the lights on and a roof above your head, there's, there's too much to do to be stopping and feeling. I hear you. Well, I think that's an opportunity for, for our generation is to, to really move the ball forward in this area. Um, you know, we're, we're very focused on doing as much of this kind of work as possible. And uh, appreciate what you're doing as well. Yeah, I appreciate you too. Is there is there anything from the uh, that you that you wanted to include that you didn't get a chance to, or you want to expound on? I know you're talking about more work. What, what what's the next step for 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 this conversation for you? Yeah, we're just really focused on doing as many projects as we can that focus on you know social issues with mental health being at the forefront 
uh, right now um, through the lens of sports. You know, we really think that um, athletes talking about these issues because of the the standing that they hold in our culture has the chance to really, really move the needle in a way that few things don't. So the more we can, you know, plug different athletes like a Michael Phelps or a Kevin Love um, or DeMar DeRozan or, you know, Dak Prescott recently into, into, you know, content that we can get out there with some conversation around it. You know, that feels like a, a real calling, um, you know, and we're, we're looking for people that, that want to support that as well. Um, so that's not necessarily something that, you know, we need, uh, a broadcaster to, um, necessarily wave their magic wand to do. You know, there's a lot of, a lot of ways to, to make content now and get it out there with, with digital technology and streaming. So, you know, we're excited to really build something sustainable that can, you know, be the industry leader um, in that area. I love that. And and one of the major takeaways uh, for me from the the documentary Weight of Gold is the importance of having um, a family or a network or a team or a purpose outside of the sport. You know, a lot of the athletes, uh, the Olympic athletes on the documentary talked about, you know, being hyper-focused and, and also to the brink of like pushing people away or anything away that had nothing to do with the sport. You know, they're in constant fight or flight mode. And, uh, and when you're pushing people away and then your sport is gone, there's nobody around. There, there's, you know, Lolo Jones talked about the loneliness that 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 accompanied her after you know uh, missing that that hurdle, and I, I would imagine yeah, there's nobody there because uh, we also aren't there for anybody. You know, I think about when I played sports, I wasn't you know I was I was an athlete. That's all I was, and I don't have time for anything else uh, that's outside of that. And then as you as you get humbled a little bit, you realize the importance of connecting with people and, and showing up for others uh, because you need that. And that's the thing that uh, can continue to feed you. Um, An example is uh, there was a guy who played for ball state wide receiver and he was going pro. And this was uh, maybe five or six years ago and uh, maybe 10 years ago, actually he was going pro and in one of the last games of the season went up for a touchdown catch and landed on his neck, breaking his neck. He lived. And NFL career out the window, and I ran into him years later, and I asked him how he coped with it mentally and emotionally uh, to have you know his career uh, ripped away from him. And he said, "God and family." And 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 the guy was still working out, and he, he said it without any hesitation, without flinching. He almost said it with pride. He was like, "God and family, like." Like, like, what else could there be? And I, I just want to say that for the listeners out there. I'm not saying, you know, find God, and I'm saying find family. But the, the point is, is that we have to have anchors in our life that keep us here. We have to have a purpose outside of, of uh, the, the, the career and the job. That can't be everything. Well said. Well said, Leo Flowers. Brett, is there is there anything else you, you want to share with us that we haven't talked about uh, from the, the documentary Weight of Gold or anything that you, you learned that you want to share? 
I'm good, but let's let's continue the conversation and do it again soon. What do you I, think? I love it, brother. Uh, and then last question I ask this of all my guests is always imagine there's one person listening in who may be on the precipice of ending their life. Before you kill yourself, what would you say to them, Brett? You know, it's okay not to be okay, and it gets better. Um, get out there, talk to somebody, go move your body, change. I mean, I I, I remember I had a, a point where I was uh, I had moved to New York for a short time. It was the middle of winter. I was lonely. I was getting over a breakup, and I was depressed. And I was I worked with a therapist, and and uh, she encouraged me just to to change to change, change things up. And I started, uh, going up to Montreal. I had some friends there and I would just get on the train from Penn station, 12 hours. And I started spending time in Montreal and it was new and it was fresh and it got me out of my rut. I was in a rut and that was a game changer for me. And I'll, I'll always carry that with me. Um, sometimes it makes me impulsive now if I'm feeling down or I'm like, let's move. And my wife doesn't love that, but I encourage people to, besides certainly getting help, talking to people, being open to medication, if that's something that might help them, you know, change your scenery, take a road trip, try living somewhere else, change things up. I think that can be really helpful too. Brett Rapkin, thank you so much for taking this time out. Thank you so much listeners for tuning in. Remember, this podcast is not a substitute for going to get help, for calling the 1-800-SUICIDE or 1-800-273-TALK. You can always go to thrivewithleo.com for one-on-one coaching with yours truly. Let's get to tomorrow together. Thanks so much, Brett. Thank you, Leo. Be well.